Urban Agorist Podcast, episode number 15. My name is James, and today I am joined by Nicole Sauce. Before we get started with Nicole, let me tell you about Renegade University. Renegade University is the online school run by Thad Russell, the historian and author of The Renegade History of the United States and host of the Unregistered Podcast. In Renegade University, you can take courses on such topics as postmodernism, the history of African-American culture in the United States, the history of the very idea of race, sex work and sex positivity, courses on the war on terror in Afghanistan, taught by the great foreign policy expert Scott Horton, Thad Russell's own courses on World War II and a history of the United States foreign policy, and of course Thad's flagship course based on his book, A Renegade History of the United States. To sign up for Renegade University, head to urbanagorist.com renegade, or just click the link in the description below. And with that, here is my interview with Nicole Sauce. Okay, Nicole Sauce, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I wanted to have you on because uh, I've really been enjoying your show and Unloose the Goose and everything else. Um, why don't Why don't you kind of introduce yourself, though? Kind of tell us what you've been up to lately and uh, that sort of thing. I am a product of the public school system and the Oregon public school system. And I, when I was in college, I was pretty sure communism was the best way to organize the world. So I am a flaming communist in my background nice because it's fair and i studied to be a high school teacher and got into the system for a very short time and was really frustrated because you spend a lot of your time adhering to regulatory requirements that have nothing to do with the thing you're teaching i was a german teacher and i was teaching you know multicultural tolerance and you know a whole bunch of other things that had nothing to do with what i was teaching but i was supposed to build it into my lessons because there was a political narrative that was being worked into the classroom. And what I saw was a bunch of kids being left behind and I got really ticked off and decided to go into adult education. So I became a corporate facilitator just because it's the same skills as teaching. And then I started looking at like, how can we fix the school system? And along the way, I moved to Portland, Oregon, where they were uh, inflicting people with a public transportation system called max which is light rail and if if you are not in a town most people know what light rail is but light rail is the most expensive and slowest way to move people and it's completely inflexible and they just love it and i understand the allure like from a romanticized standpoint of a choo-choo train right but if you're going to do that, you might as well go hard rail in that case, because it's much more e- efficient. It's a whole lot less expensive to put in. And what I saw happening in Portland was like I was, you know, I was using public transportation to get from where I lived down to the city. And it would take about half an hour on a bus. I grabbed a bus at the like nearest big road from my house, rode all the way in, got off the bus, walked to my job. You know, this is supposed to be how we in the sort of progressive cities do our 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 fair share right we take public transportation we're not polluting blah 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 well then they put light rail in and what was about a half hour commute turned into an hour and a half commute where i had to take a bus transfer to the train wait for the train take the train which was slower than the bus into downtown and then walk to work and um this is where i think my my family is full of a lot of entrepreneurial people my brain said, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. The way it should be designed is, and I came up with this whole way that transit should be designed. And I figured out how much money I could make having a second job and how much a parking pass was and gas was, and I could actually come out ahead if I drove. So it basically, I was like, well, this is forcing me off of the public transportation system. What else is messed up in government? And all of a sudden I had this epiphany moment. It was like one day to the next, holy crap, this isn't fair. This is not fair. Communism isn't fair because I have to be in charge and you have to do it my way. And I'm probably not right either. And I just happened to be working on the same floor as a libertarian think tank in downtown Portland called the Cascade Policy Institute, who has one of the nation's top minds on smart growth, urban planning and transit. And I was friends with their, one of the people who worked there, like I never really quite understood what he did. And I explained to him my epiphany about 
how communism isn't fair and the transit system can't be fixed by, you know, by making me in charge, because, of course, my ideas are better than their ideas. And he was like, you need to talk to John Charles. And so I walked into this dude's office and mind blown, like there's research about this stuff. There's all. And that's how I came across libertarianism. And then it was like this great. It's almost like when you get religion, you know, I have been yeah. converted and I was super excited. But you, you run into things like I, I would say, wait, what about the police? How do we keep people safe? And there would be my friend at the think tank. And I, I could ask him and the way he would answer wouldn't be the way a lot of libertarians do where they make fun of you. He actually would answer. Well, this is how it could work. I'm not sure the right answer, but what we have now isn't working. You know, so we'd have those conversations. And so during my awakening, I had access to these great minds, started reading F.A. Hayek and some of the Austrian economists. And by two years after then, got into the free market think tank movement, worked in public policy for 14 years, furthering issue campaigns. And my like my heart's mission was to work in the liberty libertarian movement to um, convince libertarians to communicate about their ideals in terms of emotions first and then the facts, because to, to bring more people in, uh, I, I believe to this day, you have to acknowledge that the majority of the world does not make decisions with their brains. Mm -hmm. they, make, they make them with their hearts. And if we're gonna win, we have to win that battle too. And if you think about the philosophy in terms of does it take care of people better than the other philosophies that purport to take care of people, the answer is yes. We're the more caring, the more empowering, the more humanist approach, but we're so afraid to frame it in emotional terms that, eh, that we end up sounding like dicks. And I hope I can say that word on your podcast, but you know, it's not the, the word I usually say, that's the tamer word. Sure, but we, yeah. That's how we sound. We sound like robots and mean people and that we don't care about people. And I believe the opposite is true if you really examine it. So did that for 14 years. Working in public policy is like banging your head against a nail board every single day, because when you win in one area, you lose in five other areas. And over time, I realized like my best energies are more suited towards helping people become self-sustaining, become entrepreneurs, become successful themselves, because as people become successful, they realize that the tyranny of the state is a problem. And so the more, the more we can go on that level, the better off we are, because then there are more of us saying, no, I'm not wearing the mask or no, I'm not getting the vaccine. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've actually just today, I've been kind of arguing a little bit on Facebook with uh, another libertarian who has completely drunk the COVID Kool-Aid. Um, he's he's opposed to the government mandates, but he thinks that people should be doing them voluntarily. And I think my point is, you know, even let's just, let's just assume that masks and staying home have some sort of benefit as far as like ending this pandemic quicker. I don't think they do because, you know, for, for various and sundry reasons, and you can go back and listen to my Jeffrey Tucker interview um, for a lot of those. Uh, but what that does when we, when we, when we say we should be doing this stuff voluntarily is it, it silences the protest. And, you know, there's a reason that the, that the statists elected two presidents and now kind of three after George W. Bush bombed Iraq, and it wasn't because they stayed silent. It's because that became so unpopular by 2008 that no one who supported it could ever get elected again. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the same thing's going to happen in, you know, four, eight, whatever years with governors and lockdowns. Um, yeah, we, it, it's going to be interesting to see that because it's almost like people want them. Yeah, exactly. And everybody wanted the Iraq war, too. I mean, it was super popular. Yeah. What a, I, I was in the minority on that one. Yeah, me too. I was, <laughs> I, well, yeah, we were both on the left at the time. So it was, yeah, yeah, it was easy to be opposed to it back then. I was a, oh, no, no, no. I had become libertarian by then. Oh, I, I had not. I'm I was old. a, I'm old. I was a, I was a Howard Dean, uh, <laughs> Howard Deaniac. I think it was my first election over the age of 18. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, you, yeah. How do you, what, what, what do you think? is the best way to communicate to people's emotions. Cause it, that, that is definitely something that's difficult. 
for a lot of libertarians, especially libertarian guys, not to be sexist. Yeah, it's right, though. And I am sexist about that. Not all of them. Like, okay, this is not a libertarian, but it is a guy. Uh Arthur Brooks knows how to tell an emotional story. He knows how to tell a story about somebody who's suffering on the street and what they've faced and, and the things that they've tried and how they actually came across something that changed their life. And for the better, that's like a story arc that I've just said. And what I think we need to do if we want to communicate with emotions is find the people who have faced great hardship, who have made it through, or maybe who haven't made it through, but who could be helped if we would just stop socking them in the nose. Um, Some stories that I find easiest to find just in a welfare need for welfare scenario is that it's the cliff story, basically. So you find somebody who's on food stamps, who um, has had trouble getting a job, maybe a single parent, and you go get to actually know them, sit down with them and talk to them. Don't bring your politics in. just what's your day like. And um, you know, what, what do you feel like when you're using your, your, EBT card or whatever that's called. Your, I think that's what it's called. And uh, how does that make you feel? Do you wish you could do something different? You know, just start, start asking questions. And what you'll find is a lot of people, not all people, but a lot of people would prefer to have a job, to be working because it makes them feel better about themselves, to have that control of their destiny. And one of the biggest things that's stopping them is like, well, I would like to take this job. I can get a part-time job and work it into my life and still take care of my children. But if I get paid, then I lose more benefits than the money I'm getting from the job. And, and that's, a, you know, that's a system we've set up. And I think if you find those stories and say, okay, but how about instead of that, we have a better way to help take care of that person, right? And then you, you explain, you know, if under libertarianism, what would need to happen for somebody who's facing those hardships is more of a community voluntary approach where you set it up to take care of the person while they get on their feet and, and start earning their own income. And, you know, that's, it's not like that formula is not earth shattering and it's not sexy and I'm sorry, but that's what people respond to are the stories. And then if you can find actual examples of people who have thri- you know, find, found a situation in which they can thrive, that's even better. There's, there's a, a little girl who uh, grew up in Oklahoma and she's autistic. Mm-hmm. And when she went into the government schools, they, uh, she was bullied because she was different. And all her mom wanted was for her to go to a different government school that specializes in autism, but it was outside of her uh, school district zip code. Yeah, Cause you, you go to the school that your house is, yeah. is uh, dictated to go to. And so they were allowing her to continue to be bullied day after day after day until she tried to commit suicide. And what happened is her mom found a scholarship that would send her to a private autism specialization school applied for it, got it. Her daughter went to that school and has turned into a happy, healthy, functioning adult. Like she got the help she needed. And that is an example of how a free market solution can work. Well, what if instead of having to accidentally find this random scholarship fund, she had just been able to go to whatever school she needed to go to? What if there wasn't an expectation that you pay property taxes and you're stuck you know, for me going to my county high school, no matter what happens, no matter what my child needs. That would be really awesome if everybody had that opportunity. Every child deserves an opportunity to get the best education and almost every parent wants them to. And if you're a parent who does not want your child to do well later in life, then you made a bad choice by having kids, right? And that's, that's a very rare parent. A lot of people think that all these parents are just going to be abusive to their kids. No, some are. Mm-hmm. That is reality, but that's not the norm. And we tend to regulate for these outliers in our society and ignore the fact that most people are good and want, you know, most parents want what's best for their kids. It's just, it's a thing. It's built into us biologically. Yeah. And, and, and this year, especially, I mean, we've seen, we've seen, first of all, that most parents do want what's best for their kids. We see that a lot of parents don't know how to give or can't give what's best for their kids. And of course, 
the parents who are of slightly more means and can like have those pandemic pods, for instance, and hire a yeah. tutor uh, are now villainized, which is, you know, I mean, look, they just want what's best for their kids, just like everybody, you know, let them give it to them. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was somebody on our county uh, Facebook today upset because they've closed schools. Like, why did they even bother going back? They've just been on again, off again all year. And I said, yeah. well, parents can go 100 percent digital if they want to in our district. And she said, I thought you couldn't do that. And I was like, well, okay, I don't have a kid in school, so I haven't verified it this week. But last time I looked, and that was in October, you could do what you want to do. But then, of course, at that point, you might as well just homeschool. Yeah. You know, there's better programs out there than what our district can provide. That's yeah, sure. and it's, that's, the, that's the other thing. And I, I, I don't want to get too much into homeschooling, but I mean, there's yeah. so much. Um, it's not like the mom is sitting there at the dining room table playing teacher. I mean, yeah. You know, Hopefully not. You, <laughs> uh, Jack Spearco talks about his his grandkids homeschool, which is just I mean, it's just school at the computer. Uh, yeah. And Ron Paul's got his curriculum that uh, is an entire an entire K through 12 education that yeah. um, anybody can do. Um, OK, so cool. What happened after the what happened after the think tank? OK, so 14 years public policy movement had this great epiphany that wow, I need to be doing something different. I had already started a podcast called Living Free in Tennessee, which I am doing to this day, that focused a lot on homesteading, self-reliance, and and just entrepreneurship, self-improvement. When I started it, I didn't exactly have the focus of the podcast completely worked out. I just did it because I needed a creative outlet for my job, which was frustrating. And when I realized I needed to transition out, I, I did it very suddenly. I was starting to have heart issues develop from, um, I think, because when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing professionally, which is like you're a big part of your life, um, that has a pretty harsh psychological impact on you. And then that flows over physically because from one day to the next, I made the decision to leave my very successful job. And transitioned into um, what would be a poverty level income. <laughs> We're working from home on whatever I could do, selling eggs, roasting coffee and selling that, doing my podcast and send, selling, sending memberships, um, doing little paint jobs for people here and there. I did a lot. I just basically took a shotgun approach. And over time, what happened is the podcast took off and my, my coffee, which is holler roast coffee, went from... I was, you know, roasting in a cast iron skillet for people in tiny little batches to oh, wow. I now have my second commercial roaster just got installed this year and I mail order hundreds of pounds every month to different people all over the US. And it was by trying all of those things at one time for me that I was able to say this, you know, this egg thing is great, but I don't I don't I don't want to have a mass egg production. Uh, lifestyle, but the coffee makes me really happy. Like I literally play music and dance while I'm, while I'm roasting out there every day. And that's really funny because I have that intellectual background and I love reading and learning and, and articulating things, but man, just standing there roasting, like toasting beans. I love it. And, and so as I did that, um, I have also in the podcast built in methodologies for people to develop their life strategic plan so that, rather than saying, I'm going to be a doctor, right? Which is the how you get there. You define your why mm -hmm. and, and, and the so what, like why, you know, why you are, how you are, and the so what that means is this or that. For me, outside of a profession, so that you can look at the kind of, kinds of things you want in your life, whether that be lots of people around you you love, animals, um, the ability to not have to wake up to an alarm every day, like whatever those characteristics are. It, it Once you get that, then you can start making decisions about, well, is this thing I'm doing, does it fit with that or not? And I find that filter is really helpful for people. Yeah, I think so. I've been working with uh, Miguel Duque from episode uh, number, what, nine? Episode number nine. Um, he is now officially my coach. And mm -hmm. we have really been trying to center in on what my purpose and mission and vision and all that are. Yeah. Um, and it saw, you've kind of been doing that a lot too with just the hauler, which... Uh, yeah, so I've, I've started a series of podcasts, which is my method for developing either your business strategic plan or your life strategic plan. Um, 
And I decided to do it on the podcast because I do coaching sessions for that. But sometimes people just need to start thinking that way. You know, like you're not always ready to take coaching responsibly, which is to spend time, as you know, with your coach, mm-hmm. do the work in between times. And it's a lot of thinking. Um, so yeah. we're on week, we, I think we just finished week four and I'm finally getting to where like, I'm, I'm actually doing the stuff. Yeah. Uh, now I know what I want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, and so what I've done on my podcast is rather than, cause I've already gotten my life strategic plan. I did that a few years ago. I redid it. I've done it several times in my life. First time I did it, I was like, I want a job where I travel and I got that and I hated it so yeah. much. I got it in two years. That and that's been that's been my big uh, my big hang up as well as far as like setting smart goals and yeah um, making a purpose and long term stuff. Uh, I know that what I set today is has nothing to do with what I'm going to want in five years. Um, yeah. So why even do it? Why even set the goal? Right. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I, mean, had to, I had to give myself permission to to change my goals as I went along. Yeah, you do. And I think that's really hard for people who've been really used to a black and white um, situation where like I'm committing to putting in the fence by Friday and don't give up, man. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't even like fences. Why am I putting this fence in? You know, and and that does happen in your life because life is a journey. What I've done on the podcast is take we have four families that all live by each other in the holler and we operate as a pod and, you know, a different household cooks dinner one night each week. So there's four different dinners at different houses. We cook for everybody and um, do chores at each other's houses and hang out. We enjoy each other's company and they have come here in part because of my podcast. So they became part of the community and then they are bought into the overall philosophy that we're talking about at living free in Tennessee. And so I said, well, let's do a strategic plan for us and I can do it live on the air, like the live, you know, when I'm recording my podcast and that will help people see tangibly what I mean when I talk about building your plan. Are they living on your land or does everyone have their own kind of homestead? Right now, one person lives on a cabin on my property and pays me rent Uh and everybody else has their own place. And we're, we're working on acquiring some additional land. That's so So, cool. Yeah. The, everybody owning their own thing is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I was, yeah. uh, before we started this afternoon, I was telling my partner, um, kind of what, what's your situation look like? And he goes, it's not a cult, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it might be. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Some people probably think it is. <laughs> uh, I said, it's more of a, more like a commune. He goes, that's kind of like a cult. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can leave anytime they want. Yeah. Or so, or so you say, uh, okay. How'd you get into coffee? That doesn't grow in Tennessee. I'm from Oregon though. And we drink coffee in Oregon. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. And I, I spent a good amount of time in Europe. So I had found coffee over there, um, at a higher quality than when I was originally getting in Oregon and then more craft roasters came in. Mm. So when I moved to Tennessee, we didn't even really have many Starbucks here unless you were in the city. Right. So coffee culture hadn't really hit. And I used to fly home with an empty suitcase to visit, you know, when, when Oregon was still my home, which Tennessee is now my home at this point, but I'd fly back, see my family, go to the store, fill my suitcase full of bags of coffee and fly back. Oh my God. And one time I, I just ran out of coffee and I was like, I got to drive 25 minutes to the store. I'm going to get crappy Starbucks at Walmart. Right. That was my option at the time. And I, I just, that thing that happens, you're like, how can I do this better? And I looked online and I learned all about green coffee beans and you can store them for a year. So you can buy a year's worth of green coffee beans. And then I roasted my first batch and didn't really understand that it was going to smoke and set off all the fire alarms in my house while my partner at the time was asleep. And he was really grumpy about that because I woke him up from a nap. And then after that, I roasted outside and I went through I just went through all these iterations of different ways to roast coffee and, and it, it took off. I just discovered a love for it over time. And people who love coffee, love good coffee. And it's kind of fun to watch their reaction when they taste, I do air roasted coffee. Now it's a very different flavor than some of the drum roasted or plate roasted coffees. Oh, 
again, another kind of off topic thing, but what is, what's the difference between the different types of roasting coffees? I've seen plate and drum. I don't know what air roasting is. So basically picture a giant popcorn popper. Okay. You know, like an air popper for popcorn Yeah. from the eighties. Uh, that's basically air roasting coffee. You're, you're blowing hot air through the coffee and it makes the beans move. Mm. So they're never really in contact with a hot plate. So other like a drum roaster, the beans are touching the metal and the metal is being heated up yeah. by, you know, a flame or, or an element of some sort in air roasted coffee. It's, it's actually called fluid bed roasting. It's just constantly moving. And so what you get is a really clean tasting roast without any of the sort of burnt flavors that the beans get from touching the, the drum roaster or the hot plate when there's an agitating arm and a plate. Yeah. We've got a coffee shop near me that they roast their beans on site with a with a plate roaster and yeah. it stinks. Like it, it doesn't smell like the good coffee smell that you'd expect. Um, it almost smells like poop. Like it's just gross. <laughs> <laughs> I hate going in when they're when they're when they're roasting. I'm not um, sure mine smells much better when I'm doing an Italian roast. Like there's a certain point where it just it's sure, smoky. Yeah. It just yeah. it just yeah. Um <laughs> I, yeah, and I won't. I, I can't drink Italian roast. It's too. It's just too much for me. Um, yeah. I'm. I'm like the breakfast blend guy. Um, you are. Yeah. <laughs> um. So let's get back a little bit to coaching, mission, that kind of thing. Yeah. What? Give like a give like a step by step for someone who uh, is a little more intellectual, a little more, um, just like cerebral, who uh, would like to would like to sort of expand their horizons and not fit themselves into this box that they're miserable in. You mentioned, you mentioned that, you know, doing things that you don't feel like is your calling is it not only has like a psychological detrimental effect, but also spiritual and physical. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a, there's a lot of people in our communities right now, especially in the libertarian community who just right now in 2020, and going into 2021, all of this uncertainty is stressing the hell out of people. Yeah. Um, and I know that there's a lot of people who are looking for change. Um, so what's, what's, what coach me, coach us. It's funny because when I did make my change, it was very sudden. I went from driving to a trade show to coming home and telling the people who worked for me at the organization I had founded, they had one year to take over and run this business on their own if they wanted to keep their jobs and keep working there, which is kind of a stark thing to tell your employees. I also said I would not take a salary for that year and they could use me any way they needed to for the transition. Um, However, that had been building for years. And so I think when you first, the first step is to identify something's not right. The way you know something's not right, unfortunately, is not here in your head, right? Up, Up in your brain. It's in your heart and your gut. It's it's in how you feel when you wake up in the morning about going to about your day. You know it feels wrong. And I'm sorry that that is not intellectual, but if you start analyzing that feeling and what's making you feel that yeah. way, you will find there is usually an intellectual reason why. Yeah. Your body's giving you signals. And, you know, uh, one time when I was working downtown before I changed to the libertarian movement, I remember I would ride my bike in and out at that point on the way in, I would feel sick. And on the way home, I would feel light. And I was like, you know what? Uh, driving to work makes me feel terrible. And that must mean something. And as I got in there, I realized that the relationship I had with my superiors was the problem. It was abusive. It was, it was not a good working situation. And as I realized that, I was like, okay, well, I need to have a different relationship with my next boss. And it also means I need a next boss or no boss. I mean, ultimately, I ended on no boss. But if you're getting started, realizing that something needs to change and then don't assume it's your job, that's when you start asking yourself why. So what makes me happy every day? Write that all down. What makes me frustrated every day? Ask why. From there, and I'm a big proponent of writing in a journal. And some people who are younger than me find it difficult to write with, a, with their hand. That's, if you need to type it, whatever, but start writing your thoughts down because within those thoughts, if you do it methodically every day, you will start identifying what the, the source of the problem is. And you may be surprised. Um, a really fun exercise is to write the 20 people who you interact with most 
and just list them, you know, it could be your husband or wife or your kids or somebody at the DMV that you talk to every day. If you go to the DMV every day, cause you're a masochist <laughs> say this. anyway, um, you write those people down and then to the, you know, go back through the list and you write down if they uh, empower you. So like when you're done interacting with them, do you feel uplifted and happy? Uh, if you're done interacting with them, are they neutral? Like an N if you're done interacting with them, is it like crap? Mike is calling. Do I answer this? Okay. I'll answer this. Sigh. Talk on the phone. Hang up. You know what I'm talking about? Those are your energy vampires. The fewer of those you have in your life, the better. And this was my first step towards really getting happy was I listed all of those. Uh, one of them was my partner at the time and was on the vampire list. And then I went back through and asked why. Why are all these relationships around me, you know, good, bad, or indifferent? And some of those people changed once I was able to change how I interacted with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, and actually she's going to be listening to this, I think probably, but that's something that I realized with my mom just in the last month. Yeah. Actually, it was, it was a conversation I had with Vin Armani, which Vin and I were talking about, um, nothing even really relating to, to anything. And it just so happened that my mom had been on my mind through the entire conversation. So I brought her up and I realized right then that my mom and I have never had a mother son relationship oh. and that it's okay. Yeah. We make, I'm, I'm the oldest child. I, I helped her raise my younger brother and sister. Um, you know, I, it wasn't like a single parent household or anything like that, but you know, I was the, I was the responsible one and my mom and I are really good partners. And when we're talking strategically, um, oh man, we, we really flow off of each other because we're very different people, uh, mm -hmm. actually kind of like you and, and your mom from what yeah. I understand. Yeah. Um, and having realized that she's no longer on my vampire list, like I look forward to, yeah. texting with her and stuff. So yeah, you figured out what it was. And that's the thing. Sometimes your interactions with people will change. Sometimes you have to drop them. Yeah. And, and what I did was drop everybody out of my life that was on the vampire list that I couldn't change. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because we're taught that we're supposed to like everybody and be nice and polite. That will free you up to then be able to say, okay, I figured out the people part. Now let me figure out the things I do that I love. And, and that's where it gets weird for those of us who are intellectual, because you may actually find that sitting down to write the treatise on your analysis of cancel culture, which I'm totally going to do in the next two weeks, um, is, is not an empowering thing. You do it because you feel driven to do it, but it may be an energy suck for you. And you may find whatever it is you do for work is, or you may find that your hobby of brewing craft beer which you thought you loved, you loved 10 years ago and you don't anymore. And when you start looking at the character, and this is what I tell people, define what you like in terms of the characteristics. Is it doing something with your hands? Is it being able to finish something from beginning to end every day? Is it having control of what time you do what? You know, what are the things that are the top two to three most important things for you long-term for your happiness and your health and start there and then figure out what your, what your purpose is, what your, why are you here for you? What makes you happy? Why, why do you like to do those things? What about that is that? And you may find out I'm a teacher and I need to teach, or you may find out I'm a craftsman and I'm happiest when I'm building something beautiful for other people or for, you know, for myself, it just depends on who you are. And when you get there, I think that's where you can back into I finally figured out my purpose. And once you have your purpose, which is your why, then you can figure out, so what? So what does this mean I do? Because it's great to know your why, but if you don't know what to do with it, then you're in trouble. And I'm sure you're, you're hitting that with your coach right yeah, now. Sometimes. Sometimes. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 uh, my day job is great. I love working there. Um, yeah. I have... Uh, bigger aspirations, I think, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for now, for now I'm in a pretty good spot, pretty good spot. It's just, it's not my forever spot. So I'd like to know where that's going to be. Yeah. And th that's the other thing. And that's a really good place to be that you realize that I know so many people where you are, who are pissed off because they're at their day job and it's not their forever job. Mm. You're like, no, this is good for right now. Cause it'll get me where I need to go. And I'm figuring out where I need to go. 
you know, I, I know people who have jobs they don't like where they work from eight in the morning till five at night at the job they don't like. They went through the process and realized that they make a hundred thousand dollars a year at the job they don't like. And it enables, and it's one they don't have to take home outside of work. So they're making a ton of money relative to the amount of time they need to put in. And they were like, you know what? I now love my job because I realize I can leave it. And every weekend I get to do, you know, my SCA medieval reenactment. And the reason <laughs> I can do that without too much fuss is I'm done with work for the weekend and I can go do that. Yeah. A huge portion or a huge part of that is just reframing how you, how you see things sometimes it's not always, I mean, you know, sometimes you have to cut everybody out of your life, but uh, other <laughs> times, everybody. other times it really is just the way you, you interpret the, yeah. your circumstances. Yeah. Um, so w- switching gears a little bit, what, a so the, the, the current title I'm, I'm, rebranding and I don't think I don't think I'll have the the new title by the time this airs but uh so currently we're urban agorists and Mm -hmm. you're you're definitely not you're you're kind of a rural agorist I suppose um but uh let's say let's say someone is in the city uh maybe they're in a city like Minneapolis where I live and they're allowed to have 12 chickens or whatever right um what are what are some things that that someone who would like to gain self-sufficiency can do uh, without needing to completely up in their lives and buy a plot of land out in the country? Well, the first thing you need to figure out is how much of your life can you upend, right? What are you really willing to do? And, you know, growing meat in a an urban setting isn't hard if that's the thing you want to be sustainable with. You just have to decide that's a priority to you. And growing your own meat also means what? Processing your own meat or finding somebody to process it for you. So you, like rabbits, for example, are great pets. And in an urban environment, you're probably not going to get a lot of crap for having a few rabbits, right? Well, rabbits make meat quickly. And um, can you kill a rabbit? I don't know. That's a question you need to ask before you just jump in. So I think it's important to know your parameters. And if you're one of the people who can't slaughter, that's fine. Like, don't, I, I hear people beating themselves up over that sometimes. And I'm like, whatever, that's just not your thing. Grow your lettuce inside then. You can grow all the lettuce you need inside in about a four foot square area. You can stack it in shelves so it doesn't take up as much as a footprint. And it's super easy to do. And that just gives you a leg up if you have a situation like this year where things shut down. And then like one of the first things we had out of grocery stores here in Tennessee was fresh greens. That's because fresh greens don't last very long. And when the supply side kind of got interrupted, then they, they, it's not like they were sitting around in somebody's freezer for a while and they could just throw them back out in the grocery store. We had fresh lettuce here the whole time off of my, I was growing um, lettuce and trays with, uh, with nutrient and water and I was just doing it for fun. And I had some grow lights and I, I was like, wow, now I better do a rotation because if I don't do this, we're not going to have fresh salad in the middle of winter. And I'm, my original motivation was that store lettuce tastes crappy. So, yeah. you know, it's, it was like, it's always, what I'd like to say is always let it support your lifetime priority. Not the, I'm trying to be more self-sufficient because the end of the world is coming. Mm-hmm. Right. You want something that makes your life better. Fresh lettuce makes my life better because I like salad. So I did that. Um, I actually don't know if I can kill a bunny or not. Just full disclosure, I can kill chickens and pigs, but I I don't know if I can kill the furry little bunny. So if I were going to raise bunnies, I would need somebody to um, handle that for me. I have a dog who absolutely detests... I have a dog who absolutely hates rabbits. So uh, I think (laughs) think he might do it for me. (laughs) It's his, it's weird. It's his least favorite animal. Like squirrels, he, he kind of lunges at and barks a little bit, but when there's a rabbit in the yard, oh my God, just he'll tear, he'll tear his leash off. Yeah. So Um, if you're in a town that has like livestock prohibitions, that's what you can do. The other thing is if your neighbors don't tell on you, nobody knows you have chickens. They're not loud. They don't smell. That's a, that's a risk you have to decide if you're going to take it or not. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's the other thing is, we all have this mindset that like whatever the government says we have to do is what we have to do. Uh, you know, I mean, this year has been a pretty good, a pretty good lesson in opposition to that. I mean, how many people actually followed their state's stay at home order on Thanksgiving? 
Um, oh. I'm yeah, I mean, I'm sure a bunch of a bunch of the the the, the good and upstanding people did, but I mean, we didn't. Uh, we, we, you know, um, the, the grandparents stayed at home, and yeah. we got together with the siblings and parents, and you know, had a pretty good lower key than normal Thanksgiving, and we're gonna do the same thing on Christmas. So, well, and uh, that's the thing. Like, they just what's happening. So we did that, and then they they released. I saw an article today basically scolding us for not staying home for Thanksgiving as we were asked to do. So they looked at our cell phone data that I, it oogles me out that they even have access to that Lord. and noticed that everybody traveled anyway to go see their people. And then they wrote like this chastisement. And I'm like, why do we put up with that? What business of it is of theirs? Is it that we went and saw each other and how many of us got COVID because of it? They're blaming the current current surge on Thanksgiving right now in my in my county. I'm like, that's not why. Oh, it's too soon. Like even even if that's even if there is a surge from Thanksgiving, it's it hasn't been long enough since Thanksgiving to. I mean, just today to hasn't know. been long enough. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. But, yeah, but exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah, we oh, had and a, it was surging before Thanksgiving. By the way, our governor our governor shut down restaurants and bars and gyms, and the day after that was when our seven day rolling average started declining. So of course. Yeah. You know, he'll take oh, all the why. credit for it, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, all right, cool. So uh, what else? You So you just did a, you just did a Kickstarter, right? To yes. buy a new roaster. How'd it was that... a crowdfunding campaign. I didn't use the Kickstarter platform. Right. Yeah. How did that, so, okay. So how did, how did that, how did that go? Um, and how much more difficult was it to use your own resources rather than a platform? One of my top secret things I sell are websites that I build for people. So when I realized I had caught my roaster on fire, my first commercial roaster, and it took me two weeks to get it up and running again. And I realized part of the problem is that I was running this thing like all the time. So I doubt I had outgrown it. I knew I'd outgrown it. I was planning to get a bigger roaster after the Christmas rush, because when you change things right before Christmas, you do lose your mind. I can now confirm this. And... <laughs> I was like, well, you know what? I'm not going to make it through the Christmas rush right now as it is, because if I'm down for two weeks during Christmas, I'm completely screwed. So I thought, well, I did a Kickstarter to get my first roaster. And all I did was pre-sell coffee and a whole bunch of people got interested. Pre they trusted I would send it to them, pre-bought coffee, and I had enough money to buy the roaster. I'll do that again. And then I looked at the Kickstarter platform and I thought, yep, this functionality is great and I only have to pay him 5% and I am a web developer, but I need to get this done. So I did all of my setup on Kickstarter, submitted it, they declined it. They declined it because they didn't want me to tell the story of my roaster catching on fire because they decided that was against their terms. And I asked why, and they said, well, you can do it, you can frame it this other way, but just don't talk about the fire. And I said, okay. And I went back to my marketing campaign. I like I spent a lot of time, like two weeks, probably coming up with all of the language and all of the perks that people would get, and you know, like different because we did like pour over cones and all this fun stuff. And I thought, you know what? No, this marketing is the right marketing, and I know how to build websites. Surely there's a plugin for that. And stupid me, I went out and got the best plugin and built the site. And the best plugin is not very good, so I paid a different developer to fix it and launched the site and it i was right the marketing worked really well because people already liked my coffee so uh, the majority of my my supporters ended up being people who already bought my coffee mm -hmm. and then they would tell their friends and then you know personalities who i interact with like jack spearco or john willis over at special operations equipment got interested and they talked about my coffee and then the humble mechanic talked about my coffee and Dixie Mills, who's the hiker. She, so like a whole bunch of different personalities got involved. And I went from an original goal of $10,000 to get the roaster to $30,000 in one month. Uh, and this is all pre-sold coffee. So it's not just like they gave me the money, they get mm. coffee back. Um, but in hindsight, I'm glad I did my own platform because I owned my marketing and I own the relationships of the new people. So I don't have to feel like I need to go through the Kickstarter platform to email these people. I can just email them and say, this is the list you're on. You can unsubscribe because I don't want to force anybody to do anything. But these are the other coffees we have, you know, now that everything's up and running or I can give them updates. And 
in hindsight, I'm glad I did that. It would have never worked though if I didn't have the network I already had. Right. So that's the thing. That's the trade-off yeah. there. Back to back to community. That that's one of your that's one of your big things, right? You guys yeah. on Unloose the Goose just did a whole episode on community. I think it might have been I know I've heard you talk about community prior to that one too, maybe on another episode or something. Um and I think that's one and, and John too on Unloose the Goose with mm-hmm. uh with Freedom Cells, who he was just on the show. So uh what is the benefit of community um from like a liberty perspective? We like to think that we can work on our own. And to some extent we all can. But the reality is that some of us are better at one thing and others of us are better at another thing. And so as we band together, we're stronger as a community community of individuals than we are as individuals. A good example of this, a friend of mine ran a grocery cooperative that gave their members raw milk, got raided by the FDA, got all of their members together. And they signed a document saying we have the right to have our milk, came in and got their milk in violation of the order to to cease and desist. They also, over Independence Day weekend, because that's when the the FDA had cracked down on the cooperative, called called their representatives and said, I'm sorry to bother you on your holiday at their home number, but I thought it was important that you knew that your department, your state department of making you sad, has done this to my grocery cooperative and is not allowing me to get my milk from my cows. Okay. If that had been one person doing that, they would have been just screwed, right? They would have been in jail, fined, whatever. But because, you know, more than a thousand people stood up, they were strength in numbers and they were all individuals with different philosophical backgrounds who just happened to like raw milk. So, that's the same thing from a liberty standpoint. We're stronger together. If there's a mandate that shuts down all the bars and restaurants and you want to push back on that one bar or restaurant staying open, you've seen what happens in some cases, yeah. right? Like that, that hairdresser in Texas who was thrown in jail. Yeah. We're worried about the spread of COVID, but we're going to throw you know this business owner in jail in a closed environment where the air isn't very pure and expose her to COVID because, you know, that makes sense. He was going to cut people's hair. <laughs> um, but if 400 hairdressers had all just kept going, if people had just kept rotating through her, her salon, there would have been <clears> nothing <throat> they could do about it. And so, you know, I, when I talk about community, though, I do mean real relationships and you're not just doing it to, I don't know, sell coffee or whatever. <clears throat> like I do sell coffee because I'm in a community and part of this movement. But I don't, I'm not part of this movement to sell coffee, if that makes it any different. You know, that's sort of yeah, the difference. So you need to be sense. sincere about the community that you're in. Yeah, for sure. And there's something to be said for thinking of it as a community and not just as, you know, colleagues and clientele. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. the. I think the characteristic about my business for my own life strategic plan that's important to me is I, I develop real relationships with my customers. I, I had to decide if I was going to become a giant coffee factory. And I went to Black Rifle Coffee, toured their facility here in Tennessee. And it's like a city block building with giant, like roasters as big as my house. It's really cool. And they're like, they work really hard and try to make everything absolutely consistent. They have a testing laboratory that I'm like, wow, that would be fun to play in, you know? And I looked around and I was like, this is not my business. This is not what Holler Roast is ever going to be. I want, right. when I write those notes to my clients, I want to have seen their name before and been like, oh, Chad ordered coffee again. I'm glad. I must have mean he liked, you know, the Jack's bourbon cooled last month. That's, that's the part I love about it. It like makes me smile inside yeah. every day. Yeah. And, and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with either approach. It's right. Or inherently right with either approach. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of the beauty of agorism and why I'm glad that I, like I've ever since I've been a libertarian, I've known that agorism existed. Uh, yeah. I always thought it was sort of a, a joke. Um, in fact, uh, you know, I, 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 yeah, I, well, and I've been, <laughs> I've been following Sal the agorist on Instagram for years. Yeah. Um, I didn't think he was actually an agorist. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's more um, of an agorist than I am, I think. Yeah. 
Well, uh, all of us really. He's he's and not only that, but he's like out front again about it. I I swear he's going to yeah. end up in federal prison. But um, I hope not. <laughs> I, me too. He's great. Um, but the the fact that we're not we're not encumbered by that like sort of Ayn Rand notion that the only good business is a huge business. Yeah. Um, the only good business is the business you want. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And the one that's not, that's not, you know, in bed with the state. Yeah. Um, great. Well, I really appreciate the time. Uh, sure. Do you have anything else to plug? I, I hear you're writing a book. Uh, I am writing a book about developing your life strategic plan called My Three Things, because a lot of what we do is boil. We, we set the vision and the purpose. And I always do purpose first, then vision. I do it mm-hmm. in the opposite order. And then we have three areas of focus that are big picture. Like I need to be financially sustainable might be something that you choose. Mm -hmm. Um, And from there we break it down into, you know, goals under each of those three items. And my, my philosophy is it's hard for you to keep track of more than three things a day. Yeah. So you cannot put more than three things on your, my three things list. Those are your three do or die items. You can put one thing on it though. You can be like, today, what I'm going to do is kick ass and take names at my job because mm-hmm. my job is what's enabling me to pay off my debt. And paying off my debt is the most important thing in 2021. You know? Yeah. And totally. then that's your one thing, my, your one three thing, we call it. But, uh, and that's because we as humans have a tendency to do a list of 25 things to do. It yeah. becomes overwhelming and then we do nothing. So rather than do nothing, do something. So I've been in the process of writing that book. Um, Really, the biggest plug, if you have holiday shopping and you like coffee, I mail order it and hollerroast.com is where you can grab it. We have awesome like sample packs right now that are either spirit cooled or not spirit cooled, depending on on your flavor of gift that you yeah. want to give. And and I mail them anywhere in the US or military addresses. Is the is the spirit cooled stuff? Can you actually taste the booze? Ish. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I, I was, I was kind of, I was kind of shopping around the site and I saw that bourbon cooled stuff. I'm yeah. probably going to buy a pound of it. So. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a strong bourbon flavor. It's just like somebody put a couple drops of bourbon in your cup. Nice. Well, that's, yeah. that's about all I can handle. So. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't have, I mean, like by the time I've cooled the beans with it, the cool thing about spirit cooling is you're putting an alcohol on a hot bean mm-hmm. and it cools them down faster. Yeah. And then that allows the sugars to really pop. So yeah, that's very cool. Yeah pun intended, I guess. Um, all right. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Nicole. I look forward to listening and watching the next couple episodes of living free in Tennessee, hearing you on, uh, unloose the goose and when it comes out reading your book. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, sure thing. I appreciate the time. Thanks again to Nicole Sauce for joining me today. You can find all the links that we mentioned along with links to Thad Russell's Renegade University and a few other resources I think you will like in today's show notes at urbanagorist.com slash 15, and I will see you on the next one. Until then, live free. This is the way